0: God is at work fulfilling His promises. That's the first point of our sermon this morning, that God is at work fulfilling His promises. And that's the context for what we've just heard in Exodus chapter 1. God had made that promise to Abram that through him He would bless the earth, that his descendants would be many, and they would become a blessing to the earth. And we've been waiting. The point of this reading in Exodus, from the point of that promise to Genesis 12, is hundreds of years. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. That, you know, God's made a promise that He's going to bless us, He's going to be our God, we're going to be His people, and we're wandering, and we're homeless, and this just doesn't seem so great, and yet everything... All along was going perfectly according to God's good plan, according to His timing, and according to His will. The truth is, there's a principle at work here that seems to prove itself throughout life and spiritual life, and it's this. Suffering always precedes glory. Suffering always precedes glory. Now just think of that practically. You know that in birth, mothers know this from birth, suffering, hardship, precedes the glory of the new life that you will hold in your hands. We learn this at the very beginning of life, that suffering precedes glory. And you know what? We also see it at the end of life. Some of you have been with loved ones and seen loved ones suffer in their last days. And it is hard to see. It is sad to see. But you know what Christians believe? Suffering precedes glory. It's true across the board. My Erskine students know that exams always come right before Christmas break and right before summer break. Suffering precedes glory. We live through hard seasons and then comes glory. And if you just think about life and your own patterns and rhythms, you will see that this this is true. Hardship precedes glory. And Israel is living through this in the hardest of ways. Hundreds of years of waiting to begin to see God at work, to see the fulfillment of His promises But that passage in chapter 1 of Exodus tells us they've become numerous, they've become many, and it took hundreds of years for this to come to fruition. But this is all a part of God's promise. It's a part of His plan, and it's perfect. All things are going according to plan, even when it doesn't feel like it. And this is where some of you could come up and preach your own sermon. You could say, Pastor Paul, i got a story to tell. I lived through things that were horrible, and once on the other side of them, I can now see that God was perfectly at work accomplishing His purposes, and they were good. It just didn't feel like it as we awaited it. Some of you are in that season right now. You're not yet ready to preach that sermon. You're wondering and wondering what in the world is going on, but Christians believe suffering precedes glory, faith and trust in God's word and his promises will see you through and there will be a day that these things make more sense than they do to us right now suffering precedes glory as God fulfills his promises and listen that is even true when some of the circumstances in your in your life feel like promise killing circumstances When you're living through things that humanly, there's just no way this is going to work out. It makes no human sense that this is going to come to good conclusion. But there's an example given to us here in Exodus that you need to hear and chew on this week. That our best human thinking and reasoning cannot account for God's grace and God's providential care, His sovereign care. And here's what I mean by that. The circumstances that Israel was living through in these first chapters of Exodus, as their numbers grew, I didn't read this portion because it was so much, but as their numbers grew, Pharaoh concluded, we've got to stop this population from growing. And so we are going to kill every male child that is born. We will have the midwives, when the child is born, if it's male... We will kill it. Oh, well, it's over for Israel. There's no way to overcome that. Humanly speaking, it is over. The population will now decline. It's got to come to an end. Throw up your hands. There's no way God's promises are going to be true because it just makes no sense, right? But the story continues that God was at work fulfilling His promises, working in those Hebrew midwives, who would not put those babies to death, but would lie to Pharaoh and take this one male child born, put him in a basket, put him in a river. Okay, well, wait a minute. Put a baby in a basket in the river? There's no way that's going to end well. Humanly speaking, that's just do you know the creatures that live in the Nile River? There is no way this can end well. But God is at work fulfilling his promises. And that basket will find its way to Pharaoh's palace. And one of Pharaoh's own will come and get that basket and take that baby. You know this story. And they'll say, well, this baby needs to eat. There's no way a baby can survive without having someone to to nurse this baby, feed this baby. God is at work. You know what they did. They went and found a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby. And you know who that woman was? It was the baby's mama. All things working together for good. God's will and God's plan is perfect, but in the midst of it, it made all the human sense and reason in the world to throw up your hands and and conclude. There's just no way. There's no way this is going to come together. There's no way it's going to work. You've had your moments where you have felt like that in this life. Or maybe you're in that moment now. I'm reminding you that God is at work fulfilling His purposes, His promises, His plan, and He's given us some episodes in history, in a scrapbook, to comfort you in the midst of your uncertainty. That you might cry out to the same living God and say, As you authored history before, Would you so author my history for my good according to your perfect plan? That's how Christians pray. That's the only way we know how to pray in the midst of suffering and hardship. He can superintend every circumstance, as overwhelming as it may seem humanly, and He can use it for His good. Amen. Amen. I would say to you, pastorally, Stop being overwhelmed by your circumstances. Stop being so easily defeated by what, humanly speaking, seems like bad news. And I'm preaching to myself when I say that. We need to stop being overwhelmed by circumstances. Stop being so easily defeated by bad news and trust that God is at work and pray for him to fulfill his purposes, even through what just seems to be awfully bad news. Secondly, God is at work in this passage and now providing necessary leadership. God is at work providing leadership. Listen to Exodus chapter 3, selections from chapter 3. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. So now go, speaking to Moses, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt but Moses said to God who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt and God said I will be with you and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt you will worship God on this mountain Moses said to God The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt. That's a lot of words, but there's a beautiful message there for us to hear. And what it is is that God is providing the necessary leadership to deliver his people from their misery and their suffering. The truth is, a leader was needed, a voice was needed, an officer was needed, someone who represented the Lord with authority, who could rally the troops, who could gather the people, who could be a voice of God from God. And Moses introduces for us the office of a prophet that God would make use of a human voice speaking to and through the office of a prophet. But what's interesting here is how God calls Moses. Now, I didn't read this passage, this portion of it, because it's so much text this morning. But you remember how God called Moses. The beginning of chapter 3 in Exodus, Moses is tending to sheep, his father-in-law's sheep. It was just another ordinary day for Moses. He got up and tended to sheep. When he woke up that morning, he had no idea what would happen. And as he tended to the sheep, there was a bush in the distance, and it was on fire, but it was not consumed by fire. A mystery. See, R.T. Moore, if you'd like to know exactly how that works, a fire not consuming the bush, but coming from the bush. And and the the burning bush spoke and called Moses by name. And it was the living God, a theophany of God himself speaking through the bush and calling Moses to be that voice, that officer of God. We don't see things like this. But we believe that God has done something, did something here supernatural to authenticate himself and to to define this moment in redemptive history. But as that dialogue goes on between Moses and God, Moses and the burning bush, Moses is very quick to communicate, I've got weaknesses. And this is what comes up in chapter 4. He says, I'm not one to go and speak for you. I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. Now what exactly does that mean? Well, maybe he stammered. Maybe he stuttered. Maybe his mind didn't work very quickly and he just wasn't a good communicator. And he has the best excuse for the Lord. I'm not the one. I can't do what you're asking me to do. I don't have the gifts for it. You're asking the wrong guy. It's just interesting to me that when the Lord needed a voice, he went to the one who apparently he knew didn't have the voice, humanly speaking, to get it done. And there's a reason for this, that the Lord would show himself to be the voice, that the Lord would show that his strength is made perfect in weakness, which, of course, we're told in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, we're told... My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. So what we're saying here, folks, is that Moses is eligible to fill this role because he's weak for the job. And he knows it. That makes him the perfect candidate to be an instrument in the hands of the living God. And the Lord still does that. You know that from your own experience. And... I know that from my own experience. The Lord calls people to do things that they cannot do. Why? We're told again in the New Testament. So that no one may boast before Him. God takes the weak and makes them strong. God takes the insignificant and uses them for significance. It's the nature of our God. It's the up-down, upside-down nature of His kingdom where he'll take something that is incapable and make it capable, glorifying himself and proving himself through that work. And so this is what he does for Moses. He says, I know you're weak, but I'm going to give you something. And you take this with you wherever you go. You take it to Pharaoh. You take it to my people. And what was it that he gave him? Well, he gave him a couple of things. But the first thing that he gave him was his name. Not Moses' name, God's name. And he gives Moses this little phrase, this little word, which is translated in the NIV that I read, I am. I am. Now this is where the word, the proper name of God, Yahweh or Yahweh comes from. And if you're familiar with the King James Version, out of an abundance of fear, an overabundance of fear of saying the name of God, it's been translated as Jehovah, which may be more familiar sounding to you. Now the translation of that little word, that name of God that he gave him, that here is I am, and he says of himself, I am who I am. Some Hebrew scholars will tell you that really, more literally, the reading of it is, I will be who I will be. What does that mean, and do you even care? Let me just give you the sum of it. When God says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, he is giving Moses the most beautiful and wonderful way to capture that in himself God gives a faithfulness, a trueness to all he's ever said and all he's ever done. To say who I am today, I will be tomorrow, and I was that person yesterday. In my name, you have faithfulness. You have fullness. You have truth in everything that I am. I sum it up this way. I think the nice summary of it is, Yahweh is and always will be with his people and for his people that covenant love, that fidelity that we've talked about a number of times and that we'll always talk about because it is how God has revealed himself. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 says the same thing in New Testament language. The same concept is this, where we're told Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same concept. It's the same notion that God is forever faithful. He always has been. He always will be. And the Lord said, Moses, take that to my people. Go tell them the one who has always known them, the one who has always loved them, the one who will always, always love them, sent you on his behalf. And so Moses is well-equipped. He's well equipped with God's name. He's well equipped with God's covenant name to go and to do the hardest thing and the hardest things he would ever be asked to do. Thirdly and lastly, God is at work being the Lord who is the leader behind the leader. Let me say that again. The Lord proves himself to be the leader behind the leader you've heard it said that behind every good man is a good woman we know that's true here the lord says i may call leaders and use leaders but i'm the leader behind the leader listen to how that's true chapter 14 verses 13 through 16 and 21 through 30. this is the most significant redemptive event in the old testament And it's given for us to hear, to remember the nature of our God and how He fulfills His promises. Listen to this and remember that there are angry Egyptian warriors who are on chariots who are chasing the Israelites' tails. And this is what is said. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea and on dry ground. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and He turned it into dry land. And the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He jammed up the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. And that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of Of the Egyptians. This is our family history, our spiritual family history. And it's recorded to give us the evidence that God is faithful to his promises. He protects his people from the worst of circumstances to accomplish his purposes in his own perfect timing, according to his own perfect plan. And God had given Moses. He had armed and equipped Moses to lead God's people with everything that Moses needed. And quite simply, it was God's word and all the promises that it contained. It was God's presence, his might demonstrated through miracles and wonders, through a staff of wood. And it was God's community of people to worship the living God, to lift up their voices, and to praise, I am, the great I am, the one who would be faithful to all of his promises. The Lord said, that's all that you need. It's all that you need. You need my word, you need my promises, you need my presence. And I'll lead you, I'll deliver you. This is how God has always worked in the life of his people or what we would call the church. He gives them his word, his promises, and he gives us symbols of his presence. I want you to think about this for a moment. Years ago, I read something from Francis Schaeffer regarding this staff of Moses, the staff that was so visible to the Israelites, to God's people. He would hold it up and God would do mighty acts through this staff. But the staff was not to be worshipped. The staff represented the presence of God. And of that staff, that stick of wood, Francis Schaeffer wrote a little chapter in a little book titled, the chapter titled, For God so used a stick of wood. I just want you to think about that for a minute. Dramatic story we've just heard of God's deliverance. For God so used a stick of wood. The mighty acts of redemption and deliverance. For God so used a stick of wood. How much more is a man or a woman or a child created in the image of the living God? How much more can God do in this earth? For God so used a stick of wood, and God can so use a church of individuals, of people, as agents of redemption and influence in this world and in this life. God can bring change. He can bring beauty and wonder into this world. For God so used a stick of wood, and how much more, according to His purposes, can he use a people, many people sprinkled throughout the earth, to live faithfully for him, to honor him. God has been faithful to his promises. He has a plan. He's accomplishing his purposes. We just don't know the timing of it. We know the conclusion of it. We know what he has said is going to happen. But it can be hard wandering and waiting and wondering what he's doing why things are going the way that they are, for the church or for individual Christians. But this morning, I want you to be reminded, God is fulfilling His purposes. He's providing leadership. And ultimately, He's the leader behind the leaders. And that's our great, great comfort. As a church, as a church family, as the church in the world. And this God who himself is our leader, what kind of leader is he? He's the kind of leader that proves himself faithful over and over again, even to the point of laying down his own life for what he calls his friends. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus tells his disciples Greater love has no one than this, but to lay down your life for one's friends. That's the kind of leader we have. He's not behind the scenes hiding. He's front and center on a cross, giving his life for his people. And this morning, as we conclude the sermon, we're going to prepare to come to the table together as a church family. We're going to sing an appropriate hymn that reminds us that it's the blood of Jesus that is our only hope. It's a fountain filled with blood drawn from God's own veins. And it's that blood that washes us. It's that blood It's that blood that's our only hope. And so let me remind you, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. But as we sing... That's the time for you as an individual or for households to find your way to a communion table. You'll have a bag that either has communion for two or a bag that has communion for five. Take whatever is appropriate. If we run out of bags of two, use a bag of five. We should have plenty. But use this hymn to prepare yourself to worship the living God who has been faithful in his promises to you. And then I'll come back up and we'll have the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful this morning to be reminded in history that you come to a people who are in misery and in suffering. And you come to deliver them. You come to lead them, providing all that's necessary for their good and for their deliverance. And Lord, we thank you that you do that for us. You may have called Moses through a bush, but called us through some different means. But most of us had and have all kinds of excuses for how you can't work or how maybe you don't know what you're doing. But Lord, we confess all that this morning is sin. We want to trust you more. We want to see and believe and know that you have always been fulfilling your promises for us. And so we bring those sins to you. We confess them to you. And we take body and blood this morning that was broken and spilt for us. And we turn from our sin and we trust the living God. And so, Lord, would you help us each to do that this morning? We ask and we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.